Good morning. How's everybody doing today? What a beautiful day here at Evergreen. Beautiful blue skies. I am going to be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. It's on page 993 of the Bibles in front of you. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone will has immortality, who dwells in an unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Hey, thank you, Mike. Well, good morning, Bergen Park Church. Good to see you guys here. Great job, worship team. Thank you, guys. Hey, if you don't know, uh, you know, we are uh, searching for a worship leader, so please be in prayer for that and our volunteers. It's a lot for a volunteer to step into a role like that, to carry that, to lead us in worship and try to uh, enable us. I know you come in probably like I do, meaning a little distracted, carrying the worries of life, the concerns of life. Maybe you just got up and you're still kind of brushing whatever was in your eyes or whatever you're thinking about when you were sleeping last night. And we have volunteers that are here, really, and their goal is to guide us and to lead us to set our heart on God and get our eyes off ourselves. And so we are so grateful for those that uh, serve in that way. So please pray with us as we continue that search and, uh, and God would send us the uh, person that he wants uh, for us. Hey, a couple things real quick. Uh, today, right after the service, if you haven't grabbed one of the budgets uh, that we're uh, going to be sharing next week, we'll have a congregational meeting. Uh, please, you can grab those out here in the entryway. You can also, I think over on this side of the building, the trustees will be available to answer any questions that you have uh, about the budget. We want to uh, be incredibly transparent about where our resources go, where we spend funds, how funds come in. And so if you have questions... The best way to ask those questions is really one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Bring those questions to our trustees. Uh, they'll answer that for you, and if they do not have the answer, they want to uh, take the time to make sure that uh, you understand how things work. Well, it's good to see you. Hey, next week, as we said, we're going to begin a new series called My Church. And the goal of this series, as it says, is to allow this church, Bergen Park, really to be our identity. The church is not a location. Now, sometime in the Middle Ages, the church became a building. The church was thought of as a sacred space. 
and your life was seen as a secular space. And there was a big separation between the sacred in the church and the secular in the world. Well, that's not from Scripture. Because, see, the church is not an event we go to. The church is who we are. We are the people of God. And see, when God's people gather together, what what he does is he manifests his presence among us. And so as we gather and as we go after we leave this place, we go with the gospel, we go with the power of the Spirit, and we go as the church. And so whatever you do, realize no matter what you do, you do it as the church. You never escape the reality that you represent Jesus in our culture. Now, people may not know you're Christian, but the reality is when the Holy Spirit is in you, we live out our faith, and that doesn't mean, and we'll talk about this today, that doesn't mean perfection. Because I look out here and imagine there's a lot of perfectionists. A lot of us that beat ourselves up because we don't do it right. But you know the Christian life is not about doing it right. It's about worshiping the one who is right. And see, as we worship the one who is right, he sets our heart right, and that's what enables us to do right. And so we're going to jump in that next week through my church. Today, we're actually not journeying through 1 Peter because we've closed that door. (laughs) Today, what we're doing is just kind of picking up on one theme as I was praying through this week and as I plan out a sermon series. We try to go from one series to another but sometimes there's some work to be done in between. And so today we're jumping into 1 Timothy chapter 6. And let me share with you why this is so important. As, uh, as you get into the text, you'll look at uh, verses 11 and 12. And what Paul says to Timothy, a simple phrase that you may have heard many times, is fight the good fight of faith. That Christianity is a fight. That Christianity is a fight. Now, the fight that we're in is not a fight against people. It's actually a fight for people. It's not a fight for morality. It's not a fight for obedience. If you notice what Paul says to Timothy, and Timothy was a young pastor dealing with a young church that was struggling with many to fight for what you need to see in the church in the wrong direction. And he's saying, Timothy, the thing you need to fight for, what you need to set before the people of God, is we need to fight for faith. And see, as we know in Scripture, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That what he's saying to Timothy is, Timothy, we've got a major in the majors, and we need to teach people how to set their faith, and to set their eyes, and set their heart, and set their minds, and set their hope, and set their thoughts, set all this stuff on who God is and what he's done for us. Because, see, Christianity is a fight. You know, one of my favorite books, hopefully you've picked it up at some point. If you haven't, it's probably public domain by now, is the book Mere Christianity. There's a great chapter in that book called Nice People or New Men. Did Jesus come to make us nice or did he come to make us new? See, what he's talking about in that chapter is that Jesus didn't come primarily to make nasty people nice or to make nice people nicer. No, Jesus came to make us new. And I want to read just a paragraph from that book. 
C.S. Lewis writing in Mere Christianity says, A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. What he's saying is if everybody was nice, Jesus would still need to come because he didn't come just to make us nice. He came to make us new. He goes on to say, and might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people. No, God became man to turn creatures into sons and daughters, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump, to jump better and better, but it's more like turning a horse into a winged creature, a whole new kind of being. You see, Jesus came to make us new. And Scripture says that we are new creations in Christ, which means the old life, it's got to go. The old is gone, the new has come. There's a new identity. I am now a new creation in Christ. Now, you don't see yourself that way because probably like me, you see your failure. You see the areas in your life that you need to improve. And our culture, the culture we live in, is constantly saying, hey, do better. Try harder. Work more. Get more information. Apply yourself better. If you only did better, then people would love you. Right? You guys have that philosophy. If I was only better, if I only did better, if I only had the right information, then I'd be successful, then I'd be okay, then I'd feel as if I could love and love others. But see, the Christian life is not about doing better. It's about living out of what God has done. That in Christ, we have this brand new identity. We are now the children of God, and he calls you, ready for this? Kind of shocks me. He calls us holy and blameless in his sight. Was that your week? You guys have a holy and blameless in God's sight week, right, everybody? An amazing testimony of how God worked. No sin, no shame, no guilt, no sadness, sorrow, all that, right? Just perfect. Of course not. What is God looking to? If he's not looking at your week when he says holy and blameless, what is he looking at when he calls us holy and blameless in his sight? He's looking at Jesus. And the gospel is that I am and I have what God has given me through Jesus Christ. Now listen, we have to fight for that. The fight is a fight of faith. I have to remind myself of what God has done for me. And then I've got to hold on to this new identity because the world's not going to keep me in my new identity in Christ. The world's going to tell me as a man, this is what a man looks like. This is what a man wears. This is what a man pursues. This is what a man should have, what he should eat when he comes home how his house should be clean, what he should wear. And then likewise, for women, our culture is constantly saying, this is what a woman should look like. And instead of listening to the world, we have to fight to hold on to who we are and who God has made us to be. You know, there's an interesting verse in Matthew chapter 11. It's one of those passages that many like to skip when it comes to the words of Jesus because it doesn't fit with this image of being nice. And it's in Matthew chapter 11, in verse 12, actually Matthew 11, 11 and verse 12, 
And Jesus says, and he's talking about John the Baptist, and he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Verse 12, and listen to his words. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Violence. What is the kingdom of God about? See, what John was announcing was the coming of Jesus. And he was saying, when Jesus comes, everything that sin has destroyed will one day be made new. That Jesus restores all that which sin has broken. That Jesus Christ will come. He is our redeemer, our savior. He is our purifier, our sanctifier. And when he comes into our lives, he makes all things new, which means it begins with us. We're a new creation because God has taken us back, almost back to Genesis chapter 1, and he's restoring us back to our original place. Now, it begins in our original place with him and our relationship to him, but when Christ returns in the future, one day all things will be made new. There will be no more sadness or sickness or sorrow or pain. Rather, the old things will pass away and all things will be new. We'll see right now we're in the kingdom in the sense that our hearts have been made new with God. We've got this new relationship. Well, think about how that message transformed John's life. You know, John was a nutcase because he was an old school, Old Testament prophet still living in the New Testament days. Now, if you notice that, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He just happens to be in the New Testament. Because, see, when John caught a vision of what Jesus would do, it marginalized him. He lived out in the desert wore crazy clothes, had eight bugs. But he declared a new kind of message, repent, the kingdom of God is here. You see, the kingdom, the message of the gospel was everything to John. It radically reordered his life. It changed the way he engaged in society. It changed the way he looked. It changed what he valued, how he treated others, how he saw himself, how he saw God. And listen, what he thought was important in life. Everything radically changed. What's the violence that Jesus is talking about? When the kingdom, when the gospel, when God comes in, it violently reshapes everything. It has to. Because we sang that song, Jesus, Messiah, name above all names, precious, redeemer, savior, and friend. Messiah is a king. And when the king comes in and he establishes his kingdom, when my heart gets in line with that, everything in my life needs to start to fall under his lordship. And sometimes that means we have to get radical. We've got to get violent. What did Jesus say? If your left hand causes you to sin? Everybody got two hands? All right, we're not taking it serious, are we? Of course, he's not saying cut off your hand, but it's, again, a picture of what happens when God becomes the sinner. We're radically committed to what God wants us to do. The gospel, the kingdom of God, it has to begin to reshape and to change everything. And so in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to jump there, we're going to be jumping around to a number of passages. In Philippians 3... You know, Paul uses a number of metaphors to describe this image of the kingdom or of God coming into our lives. In some places, he describes the life of a Christian as a farmer. In other places, as a soldier. But the main picture that he, he uses throughout Scripture is that of an athlete. 
And in Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14, he says this. And he's talking about his own passion and desire to know God. He says, I press on to make it my own. Now, why do I press? Well, listen, because Christ has made me his own. You see the beauty of that picture? You know, which side of that line, which side of that comma are you living on? Is the Christian life about pressing on to make it your own? Or is it about what God has done to make you his own? You see the difference between that? If you know and you're overwhelmed with the fact that God, what God has done to make you his own, you will press on to make him your own. And he's saying, that's what I see. I see what God has done to make me his own, so I press on. And listen to the language. Brothers, I don't even consider myself yet to have made it my own. And I'm like, wait a minute, Paul. You're the superstar. You know, he went into a city, preached the gospel, didn't just change lives. He changed the economic structure of that entire community. People would cast him out even and throw him out of the city. And yet he says, I'm not there yet. But one thing, one passion I have, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Forgetting what is behind, forgetting the past, forgetting my mistakes, and instead pressing on to take hold of that for which God has taken hold of me. The language he uses is violent, aggressive language. But is that the church? Are we pressing into that for which God has, because how did he get you to himself? Think about it. The story of what Jesus has done is a story of violence. It's a story of throwing off. He threw off his identity alongside. In Philippians 2, with the Father, he became a human being. And he suffered unto death, even death on the cross. The story of the gospel, the story of God, is of what God has done to purchase us for himself. And see, when that message comes in, it radically starts to reorder life. Think of Zacchaeus. You know the song. A wee little man was he, climbed up in that sycamore tree. No one knows it, huh? You guys need to go to Sunday school to see what he could see. What happened to him? He encountered Jesus Christ, and it's not that he started giving away 10%. Hey, that's what the law says. That's all I got to do. No, what happened is this radical reordering, reshaping of his heart. He now loved God, and so the principle he lived by was not 10%. It was called generosity. He saw the generosity of God. It started to radically change his life. Look at Peter. We know the story of Peter in the story of the cross is that he rejected Jesus. He ran from Jesus. He was a person that was known as a coward in many ways. Boastful on the outside, but on the inside, he was timid and afraid. What happened when he encountered the risen Christ? He now had a reason for courage. He saw the depths to which God loved him. And the Peter that encountered Jesus after or live for Jesus after the resurrection was a very different kind of Peter. Why? Because the story of Christ reordered his life. It changed what he valued. It changed what he did. And he no longer saw himself according to the past. Hey, I'm the one that denied Jesus and I got a lot of stories written about me that everyone's gonna read and remember. That's not who I am. No, I'm, I'm gonna reorder my life for God. I'm gonna seek after that for which God has saved me. You know, later on, if you want to pick it up in 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul describes it this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? And so, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Now, why do they do that? Notice he says, verse 25, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. Think of the Olympic athletes, how early they get up, how late they go to bed. Their entire life is reshaped by this desire to stand on the top of a podium, to hear their national anthem played, which I imagine is amazing. And think about the length to which that one passion and desire would cause them to go. They're pretty violent in how they pursue life. There's things that they cut out of life, and they say, you know what? That may be good, it may be okay, but it's not good for me because this is the direction of my life. That vision of trying to be the best is so overwhelming that it starts to reshape what they eat, who they talk to, the, the way they live, the things they pursue. Everything's reordered to get what? Something that will pass away. Well, if athletes are willing to do that simply to win a crown, notice how Paul describes his pursuit of God. But we receive not a perishable wreath, but rather, he says, imperishable. Verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. He's describing his life in God. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I should disqualify myself. As Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. That when God comes in, he starts to radically reorient life. Now, are we living, are we seeking just to be nice? You know, there's a difference between moral reformation and gospel transformation. There's a difference between moral reformation, becoming nice, and gospel transformation. See, gospel transformation happens when you're captivated with who God is and what he's done. And that's not a one-time thing. You hear the gospel and you respond in faith, Jesus died to save me from my sins, because realize the things he's saving you from now may not be the penalty of sin in the past, but I can promise you right now he needs to save you from the power of sin in the present. There are things in your life right now, whether it's bitterness from what others have done, maybe it's a sadness or anxiety over the way that life has worked itself out, but there is a power to sin in life. Now, that power to sin isn't going to be overcome just by trying harder. Rather, what Paul's describing is I press on. Now, what am I pressing on into? What am I fighting for? I'm fighting for faith. He says we need to set our eyes on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because we've died. I no longer live for the passions of my flesh. I don't set my eyes on, on things below, but on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And when Christ, who is my life, appears, he says, then I'm gonna appear with him in glory. He sets his eyes on who God is and what he's done, and that has a power in his life to compel him, to move him. We have to fight to set our eyes 
on that which is worth setting our eyes on. You see, are we simply pursuing a, a nice life, a comfortable life? Are we seeking that which God has sought us for to be a part of his kingdom, his movement, his power? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. You know, there's a, another book that C.S. Lewis has written called The Screwtape Letters. I recommend it. It's a great insight really into your own heart and, and the ways that we get tripped up by sin, but it's a, actually a, a conversation between two demons, the young demon being discipled by Screwtape, the older demon. And in that story, he's describing how can we get the church off the mission of God, off the kingdom of God, just get them to be nice people. And this is what he describes. Screwtape, speaking to Wormwood, says, and I warn you before that if you're patient, now your patient means us, because each demon was assigned to a Christian, and he says, if you're Christian, if you can't keep your Christian out of church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean really doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say mass and those who say holy communion. And all the purely indifferent things Get them focused on things like candles and clothes and whatnot. These are the admirable grounds for our activities. Sincerely, your uncle, Screwtape. This was the 1950s. And he's saying if the church will lose sight of Jesus and the mission, then the church will lose sight of why they're here. That the church fights for a lot of things. But are we fighting to take hold of that for which God has taken hold of us? We are ambassadors for Christ in this community. No one is going to share the gospel unless his ambassadors share the gospel. No one is going to point others to the glory of who God is and know the joy of experiencing his grace and love, to have his power in our lives when we feel weak. But those who are called according to his purpose, that's us. But what are we fighting for? I'll tell you, in my life, I'm fighting for me. Right? Often what I'm fighting for is me. What's best for me? You know, the beauty of Christ is that he shows us that. We, we get into his word and he says, you know, Jason, if you realized how much I cared for you, you would cast your cares on me because you would you would know that carrying your concerns and worrying about your concerns isn't gonna change things, but if you pour those things out on me, if you trust me, if you'll allow me to use you, if you'll serve others, that's where true power and strength is found. It's in losing yourself that we find God. What do we need to lose? What do we need to let go of? Maybe it's comfort. You know, we live in a culture that wants us to believe we are here to be comfortable. And it disciples us like a masseuse, massaging every desire we have to meet the desires of our heart. But in pursuing the desires that our culture gives us, what if we're missing the greatest 
desire that God's placed in us, which is to be used, used for his kingdom, to take hold of that for which God has taken hold of us. See, Christianity is a fight, and so he goes back in 1 Timothy, and he says, Timothy, you've got to fight. I don't know if you notice, but often in the Bible where sin is described, it says, do not be deceived. Because we are lulled into a self-deception that life is about us. And the purpose of my life is to have my best life now. But rather, listen to the way that, that Paul describes the life that God wants us to live. He says to Timothy, going back to Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you may wage good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. He's saying, Timothy, two things you need to do. Hold on to faith and to a good conscience. He repeats that down in the text we read today in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And Paul again saying to Timothy, Timothy, but as for you, man of God, flee these things. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 12, how does that get produced in our life? Well, he tells us, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That word faith in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 is a Greek word, agonizomai. You really needed to know that. From which we get our English word, agonizomai, to agonize. Fight the good fight. What does it mean to fight for faith? It means to agonize over faith. What do you agonize over? Often I think we agonize over ourselves. What I need. My fears, my worries, my concerns. You know what that's called by scripture? It's called meditation. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. We know how to do that. You see, we agonize over things in life. What would it look like? Instead of agonizing over the things in my life, to start agonizing over who God is to see who he is, to see what he's done, to remind ourselves of his love, of his power, of his goodness. So he's saying, Timothy, the way you solve the things that you want to solve in your life is by turning your eyes off yourself and putting your eyes on God. And there's two aspects to that. There's an objective aspect of faith, that there are facts that we need to believe. That's where we need to get into scripture and have good theology. We need to teach rightly, understand what is it I believe. And when you watch television and you see something there, maybe you were with your kids, you've got to ask the question, you know, how does that, how does what they say relate to what we believe? Our culture is constantly teaching us about who we are and who God is. We've got to take what our culture is saying and say, you know, what does the scripture say? What does the word of God say? And certainly when it comes to the way we see ourselves and how we face challenges in life, what does God say to me? What is he teaching me? We have to get into his word. There's an objective reality. We have to know the truth. If you don't know the truth, the truth can't set you free. But see, there's also a subjective side to faith. There's an intellectual reality. But you know, Peter knew the intellectual reality of Jesus when he denied him. Paul 
before he became uh, the apostle, knew the scriptures. He knew the word of God. You know what hadn't changed? The intellectual hadn't become spiritual. He wasn't made new. You see, he hadn't taken the truth of what he believed and, and allowed it to penetrate into his heart, that he hadn't begun to think out. If God is really good, why are we so compelled to look elsewhere? Come on now. If God is good, and Scripture said, why are we chasing so many things to find goodness? If, as in Corinthians said, he's the God of comfort, the Father of mercy, if he's really our comfort, why am I chasing comfort in all these different places? See, what he's saying is we have to set our heart, we have to fight to make the truth of who God is real in our lives, to live, as he says, in good conscience. Good conscience means to live out of what you believe. Now, one of the realities that Scripture is constantly reminding us of what we may not see is that we always do according to what we believe. So when we sin, we sin according to what we believe. So when we pursue something that God says do not pursue, what we're saying is, God, you don't know what's best for my life. Now, there's two ways you can handle that. You can look at the sin in your life and say, stop, stop, stop. And then you're gonna come back next week, stop. How's that working? You know, I was told as a young man that what I needed to do is to take this rubber band. And uh, this is a counselor, took this rubber band and placed it on my wrist. You may know where this is going. Every time this desire came, I was to pull the rubber band back as far as I possibly could and let it go. What is that teaching me? See, Scripture says that we're not changed by just moral reformation. We're changed by setting our eyes on who God is. That the affections of a young man's heart, you know how they're changed? By the compulsive power of a greater affection. How, how does an older man's heart get changed? By the compulsive power of a new affection. How does a, a younger woman, an older woman's heart get changed? By the compulsive power of a new affection. If all you're doing is trying to kill affections and desires in your heart, you're not replacing it with the affection of setting your heart on who God is and seeing him for who he is. You know, Moses had one prayer. Show me your glory. You know when he failed, you know why he failed? Because his eyes were not set on God's glory. We fail because our eyes are not set on God's glory. And so he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you gotta fight. The Christian life is, it's a fight. Now, what are we fighting against? Just quickly, in Hebrews chapter three, Hebrews chapter three, he, the writer of Hebrews says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you, this is Hebrews, I'm sorry, 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, be in any of you an evil, unbelieving, notice the language he's saying. He's not saying, hey, lest any of you disobey, but he says, lest any of you have in your heart unbelief, which he calls evil, leading you to fall away from the living God. Instead, we need to speak into each other's lives, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. The power of sin is in the lie. 
And the reality is before we give our heart to sin, to the action of sin, we believe first the lie. You know, there's an order to the Ten Commandments. If you notice that, the first four really reference your relationship with God. The last uh, six reference your relationship to each other. Which means, before you break the command, do not commit false testimony, you first have to set your heart on something other than God. He said in, in the first command, have no other gods before me, right? Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The only way you can commit false testimony is first to set your heart on something other than God. You always break commandments two through ten by first breaking commandment one. Now, how do we break commandment one right here, the deceitfulness of sin? God is not great. I've got to take control. What's he, what happens when I take control and I do things in my own Power and strength, what's happening is I really don't believe in the greatness of God. I'm breaking commandment one. I don't think God is glorious. I don't think he's sovereign. I don't think he's in control. And what happens is the deceitfulness, the lie sets into the heart. What's going to set us free? The fight of faith. Timothy, it's a fight of faith to set our eyes on the truth of who God is. It's a fight. And so what is, what is it we're fighting against? We're fighting for faith, but we're fighting against the deceitfulness of sin. We're fighting against lies. Now, how do we engage? And this is the important aspect. How do we engage in that fight? I'll tell you in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. You know, you would think if you walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, saw him multiply bread and fish, if you saw him take a coin out of a fish's mouth, if you saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, so many reasons to believe. And yet, after the resurrection, there's this great story in Galatians chapter 2 where Peter, he's hanging out with the Gentile Christians. See, the gospel came to the Jews first. Peter was a Jewish uh, individual before. He put his faith in Christ. That was his culture. He was Jewish. Well, Jews did not spend time, hang out with, certainly did not eat with Gentiles because Gentiles were unclean. They used utensils that were unclean. They ate food that was unclean. And to be unclean meant there was now a distance between you and God. And so they would stay away from Gentiles. Well, when Jesus came in, the good news to Peter was only Jesus can make you clean. Your race doesn't make you clean. And so Peter took that in. He believed it. He believed that he was a new creation in Christ. But you know what happened? Some Jewish Christians said, Peter, why are you eating with those guys? And what settled in his heart was a lie. What settled in his heart was a lie. He, he believed the lie of racism that, in a sense, God loves me because I believe in Jesus, plus I'm Jewish. Or God loves me because I believe in Jesus, plus I obey. You see, when we add anything to faith in the gospel, it destroys the gospel. And when Paul comes to Peter and says, hey, Peter, listen, you, you stopped eating with the Gentile Christians and you pulled yourself away. He doesn't say stop being a racist. He doesn't say stop disobeying. Listen to the words that Paul uses to describe Peter's actions. And this is Peter. He should get this stuff. He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not, notice, in step with the truth of the gospel. What did Peter forget the gospel? 
You see, he understood intellectually, but it wasn't what he was living out of subjectively. It wasn't what was reshaping his heart in that moment, peer pressure, racism. Something had more glory in his life. See, Peter acted out of what he believed and what he thought he needed. And see, Paul's discipleship of Peter was not Peter's stop. Hey, let's go get one of those rubber bands, Peter. What did he say? Peter, look at Jesus. Look at what he's done. Realize that you stand in God's presence, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not because of your race, nationality, not because of how much you surrender, how much you give. You're clothed because of the grace of God, and it was a free gift of salvation that God has poured on your life, Peter. Peter, remember at the cross, the ground is level. You're a child of God. You see, what Peter needed to do wasn't just to get, get some good principles for fighting racism. What he needed was faith in the gospel. He needed to go back to what he believed. So what do we need? To fight the good fight of faith, the reason Paul is saying this to Timothy is because we need people in our lives pointing us to God and reminding us it's not about us. We need people who know how to nurture faith. You know, the quickest thing that I I think we go to in Scripture is we think that Scripture is about us. I don't know about you, but when I'm reading the Bible, I see the commands, and they're almost as if they're in bold and yellow type because they stand off the page. You see, in my heart, there's this idea, I am what I do. And if I, if I do better, if I get better, then life will be better. But see, the gospel is you are who God says you are. And what we do, we do out of what God has done. You know what we have to start doing? Before we see the commands, we have to see God. Because see, the commands don't make sense unless you see the God that speaks those commands and you see what he's done for you. That's the power of the Christian faith. We're not into moral reformation. We're into gospel transformation. We're not into cleaning up our lives. We're into setting our heart and our mind and our thoughts on the one that can address us and clean us, which means we need a community of people that know how to speak the truth in love. Now, often when we think the truth in love, we think commands in love. You with me? Hey, this is what you need to do. I think the truth in love is the truth about God in love, the truth about who he is and what he's done. That I don't need to look to myself because the one who should have looked to himself, Jesus Christ, looked to me and gave himself up for me. And because Jesus was willing to do that for me so that I might be a child of God, I now have the freedom to stop looking at myself. See, the path of growth that he's fighting for is called repentance and faith. Repentance is identifying and recognizing the lie that I've believed. I've allowed the deceitfulness of sin to come in my life. How do I know? I just have to look at my behavior because my behavior follows what I believe. And if my behavior is out of line, listen, my heart in some way is going to be out of line because I can't break commandments two through 10 without breaking commandment one. And the solution is now faith. To set my eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. And to allow my heart to be captivated by what God has done as a church. We need to be a people that are raising God up before our eyes. To draw people not just to his commands, but to what he's done. And see, in doing that, that's where the power of the Christian life comes from. It comes from seeing him. It comes from knowing him and loving him. That's what we press into. Let me pray for us.
Father, I thank you for this reminder. I find daily, Lord, that uh, I want to walk in my perfection. I want to be known as just competent and capable, having all the information that I need, as seeing as strong. And yet you've told us time and time again, your strength opposes the proud. Your strength cannot come into our lives unless we're willing to say that my life is not about me. And Lord, I know we've done that in terms of salvation. We've said, Lord, you're the Lord of my life. You're the King of heaven. I know I've sinned and you've died on the cross for me and I trust you. But yet, Lord, would we trust you not just with eternity, but with today? Would you begin to root out the deceitfulness of sin in our lives, the things that we have believed, the lies of the enemy that that enslave us. And then, Lord, would you, as a community of people, draw us in such a way that we set our eyes on you and know how to speak into each other's lives the truth of who God is. Father, help us to walk in this because this community needs to know you. And the more we are satisfied in you, Father, you will work through us in ways we could not ask or imagine. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please stand as we respond in worship. Mm-hmm.